Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a pretty interesting founder. I think that we're gonna really learn quite a bit on building and scaling. He's he's done it several times. Uh, and I guess that I don't want to wait any longer. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Alex Robinson. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be here. So you grew up near Seattle in a small town. So how was life growing up? Uh, yeah, I grew up, uh, you know, if anybody's been to Seattle, you see these ferry boats coming and going from downtown Seattle. You get on one of those ferry boats and head west out to uh, a little peninsula called the Kitsap Peninsula. And I grew up in a small town out there. And uh, it was great. I mean, we were an hour and a half drive, two hours from Seattle. But I think, you know, maybe I went once a year, something like that, to the big city. So it was very much a small town experience, which I, which was great. And did you have a, I mean, this this exposure to business and to entrepreneurship, anyone in your family that was building and scaling companies or how did you develop this love for it? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. My whole family is in the medical profession in one way or another. Uh, my my father is a dentist. My sister is a dentist. My sister married a dentist. Dental, uh, the, the dental field is uh, uh it tends to run in the family for anybody who's been exposed to it but the other interesting thing about dentists is they often are very interested in real estate you, you see a lot of uh, uh dentists who own their own building and then they start buying other buildings apartment buildings retail etc and so my father was a dentist but he worked nearly equal parts on a real estate business which is how i initially got exposed to the real estate industry was helping him uh, with every aspect of of managing and owning real estate from, you know, 12 years old or whenever he would kick me out of bed at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. That's amazing. And and I know that also who you are, perhaps your personality was shaping up a bit by your travels to Spain, to my beloved Spain. <laughs> yeah. So I, even though I was from this small town, I somehow, I mean, this is back before the internet. So we had a globe at home and we had an atlas and I just became uh, very deeply interested in Spain. In my junior year of, of high school, I lived uh, outside of Barcelona on the Costa Brava, Spain, um, uh, just northeast of Barcelona. And then I returned my junior year of college and lived in Sevilla. 
and was there for the Feria and Semana Santa and um, a lot of really great and very fun Spanish uh, celebrations. So I know that uh, that you also study business administration uh, and uh, right after getting your degree, and especially when you were coming back from from Spain, you started to see all these colleagues, classmates, you know, really going into consulting and, and different things. And, and here you are all of a sudden landing on Microsoft. So how does this happen? How, tell us about this. Yeah, I, you know, I'd never, I, I, and I still haven't, I'm still not. I mean, I think many entrepreneurs are this way. I've never been one to really manage or think too deeply about my career. As I said, I come from this, this, this family of people in the medical profession. My grandfather was a surgeon. Uh, uh, and so the world I knew was medicine and I knew I wasn't interested in medicine and I knew nothing about business. Um, but, but knew that I didn't want to do medicine and I, um, uh, I liked building stuff and, uh, I was interested in business topics. And when I returned from Spain, I'd spent this year, uh, having a nice time in Spain and studying the language and traveling. And I got back and all of my classmates had had these internships at, you know, very serious sounding places like. Arthur Anderson and Deloitte and these names that I'd never heard of. And it occurred to me that if I was going to get a full-time job when I graduated from college, I probably needed to get this thing called an internship, which I'd never conceived of. And it turned out that I missed the sort of summer window between your junior and senior years. But Microsoft, who was in our backyard, you know, in Redmond, was uh, sort of experimenting with what they called this co-op, which was the idea that you'd take six months off of school, you'd come work full-time at the company in a finance role and that, you know, the folks who did well in this program would be invited back to, to join the company full time. So I landed on Microsoft because I had missed the summer internship window. And this was really one of the only uh, internships left and spent six months at the company and actually found that I really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed technology. I love technology businesses. Um, it was incredible to see how a company like that was run and ultimately came back after I graduated college and spent almost, uh, I guess, six years there after uh, graduating. And this was back in, in the early 2000s. So obviously you were able to experience the crazy growth that Microsoft was experiencing at that time. Is that right? Yeah. So when I when I uh, did this, this co-op at the company, it was actually right when uh, Gates was passing the reins to Balmer. Uh, so this is, I think, right around 2000. And I can remember being at the town hall that they'd organized to explain the, the leadership change. And from the time that I joined the company, I think my employee badge was like, you know, number 21,000 or something like that. And when I left the company in 2007 to go to business school, there were almost 100,000 people at the company. And so I was there from that growth from 20 to 100,000 people and kind of during Balmer's uh, tenure and I focused initially. I was in the finance team, and I learned that I was uh, really interested in kind of, you know, I wanted to be closer to product. I was more interested in the strategic aspects of uh, the business, and moved over to uh, kind of an internal corporate strategy team. I did that for a couple of years, and then moved over into product roles initially for a product called OneNote, which is a note-taking application in the office suite, and then eventually. Um, worked on what became Office 365. This is back in the mid. A lot of people don't know that, you know, Microsoft's response to Google Docs and spreadsheets went back to, you know, 06, 07. That's when we really first started working on figuring out how do you take Office, which people used to install on their computers and deliver it online and still make money. And, and so that was uh, the, the final problem that the company I worked on before going to business school. 
And before going, before jumping into business school, because you went to Stanford, and that That's definitely right. you know brought a, a whole different shift and a whole different flavor as well to your to your professional career. What were like I would say the three key lessons that maybe you learned from these five years at Microsoft? Um, let's see. I, I think you know the first one that comes to mind for some reason is when you become a manager at Microsoft. They um, uh, they teach you how to do this. Well, I don't know if they still do this, but back in the day, they teach you how to taught you how to do this thing called precision questioning, and it was a technique that Gates and Bomber deployed very uh, famously or infamously, depending on your perspective. But you you know you, you'd prepare for months to be in the uh, in the room with these folks delivering you know the status update on your project or your portion of the business. And I used to be involved as an analyst helping to prepare for these types of meetings. And they would they would very famously uh, deploy this technique called precision questioning. And the idea is basically to uh, uh, ask as many questions and as many layers deep on a subject as you can until you sort of find the person's weakness in their understanding of a topic. And so it's actually a really valuable technique. It's a, a, a more generic way of applying this is sort of asking the five whys or just multiple layers of questioning as a way of um, of penetrating through, you know, companies can get really good at presenting all of this corporate speak and all these numbers and everything else. And, uh, you know, I, I learned how these leaders would just very quickly cut through all of that to try to see how, how quickly they could get to the heart of the matter with whoever was presenting. And I found that to be a really valuable technique uh, in interviews and just trying to come up to speed on, on subjects anytime you're learning and interacting with people. Uh, so that was one. Um, I think, you know, just pricing and packaging was something I learned a lot about from Microsoft. They're, they're very, very good at it. And a lot of the story of the success of the Office product, the Office product suite being, you know, Outlook and Word and Excel is, is sort of how they were able to bring together these individual productivity tools and capture all these asymmetries of the demand curve for each uh, into a suite that was sort of much greater than the sum of its parts. And we think a lot about packaging uh, today at, at our company and a lot of those roots get traced back to what I learned uh, from Microsoft during those days. And if I'm being honest, there's some there's some parts of of, of, of my experience at Microsoft that I learned that I've tried to unlearn uh, as well. I mean, Microsoft had a culture. It was an incredible place to learn, um, but it had a very confrontational uh, culture. It was a culture where it, there were a lot of good reasons for it. Um, it you wanted to test someone's thinking. You wanted uh, to try to have the organization perform at its peak potential, but meetings could be quite adversarial um, where you were trying to sort of, you know, prove that the other person was an idiot or find a flaw in their thinking and really expose it. And I've tried hard to be thoughtful about the culture that we've built at Juniper Square and to identify some of those lessons that I learned early in my career that I want to unlearn as we're intentional about building the culture at our company. Got it. And after five years here, you go to business school, to Stanford, and on your second year is when entrepreneurship comes knocking to your door. So tell us about this. Yeah, so I so when you go to business school, they, they you know, depending on the school, the essay questions are different, but they're always asking you some variant of the question of, you know, why do you want to go to business school and why now? Why is this the right moment uh, for you to go uh, pursue this degree? And I wrote my essay, my response to that, question was that I wanted to come to Stanford because I sort of stumbled into this job at Microsoft and I learned a ton and it was incredible, but I wasn't intentional about my 
career choices and I wanted to be intentional. If I was going to be intentional, I wanted to be building stuff. That's what I was really passionate about. So I wanted to do entrepreneurship. And then if I could pick the industry, I, uh, I wanted to be working on the problem of climate change. And so I wanted to do entrepreneurship in, at the time we called it alternative energy. Um, and that's what I wrote my essay about. And that really was the truth. And when I got to Stanford, that's what I focused on. I enrolled in all these classes uh, on, on energy systems and tried to learn more about, you know, uh, how solar PV systems work and how wind technologies work. And that's really what I focused my time at Stanford on, in addition to just the core business curriculum. The problem I had was that I really, I didn't really fully understand it at the time, but I'd come to really deeply love software businesses. And I, for a long time, tried to figure out how I could blend this interest I had in the sort of software layer of technology versus the physical layer of technology and most of the innovation that was going on at Stanford during this time. So I was there 07 to 09. I was there when the Great Recession happened and Lehman collapsed. I was there when the uh, Stimulus Act was passed in early 09. And most of the attention of the venture capital community and a lot of entrepreneurs at that point in time was focused on clean energy. Uh, you know, John Doerr gave this big famous speech at TED on the topic. And so just kind of the buzz around Stanford at that time, which is very focused on how do you solve the, the climate change problem? And most of the solutions that you would see would be new types of, 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 of ways of, of getting energy from the sun or from the wind or from the natural elements. And I just realized I had so little to add to those types of, of businesses and I, what I knew was software. And so eventually I, I, I determined that the place where software could really play a role in helping to, uh, to kind of facilitate a transition to, to a cleaner energy economy was in the financial value chain. Because that's where you can kind of improve workflows and 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 uh, improve how information is shared among parties in the market. And software is really good at those things. And so I gravitated to to ultimately how are you know solar and wind and all these different systems financed. And started my first company. It was called Green Door. Uh, my second year at business school, and it was a um, uh, it was a software company to help counties and municipal lenders take advantage of a subsidy that existed at the time called PACE. And it sort of went out like a rocket. It was a great start, built a small team, uh, signed up our early customers. And then in the course of that first year of, of operating the business after I graduated, there was a just great lesson for me in you know market risks, exogenous risks, in that uh, uh, we got to the end of the, the first year after starting the company and the subsidy that we were working with, this PACE concept uh, essentially became regulated away. So overnight, I mean, that's not an exaggeration to say, went home from the office one day, everything was normal, woke up the next day uh, to essentially our business completely disappearing or the business opportunity uh, completely disappearing. And so that was a lesson that I knew, or it was a risk that I knew existed, but internalizing it and kind of going through that experience of failure uh, was an incredible learning experience. So I guess uh, in terms of failure, because I mean, everyone is talking always about their success and how successful they are and, and all of that. But I find that on, on, on success, you don't really learn. I mean, on, on failure is really when you get the good lessons. So I guess from this experience, really, I mean, what, what did you learn about failure? Well, I mean, I learned, I, I think there's maybe a few things that come to mind. So one is that um, 
none of these sort of causal reasons for the failure were a surprise to me. They were all fully known. And if if you had sat down with me at the time and said, hey, if this doesn't work out, why, what, is, what do you think is going to be the most likely reason? I would have literally answered this, you know, exact reason. So, and, and I have found that to be the case throughout my career and throughout building businesses is you usually actually sort of know what is, is likely to be the, uh, the, the root cause of failure. And, and so the problem isn't actually one of discovery. The problem is one of internalization. It's, it's one thing to know it in your head and it's another thing to really internalize it in your gut. And so in this case, I would say, oh yeah, well, it's this, we've got this great potential and pace could really take over the, the world. The idea was to use the property tax mechanism as a way of getting a really senior lien on the, um, uh, on, against a really high quality uh, asset and lower the cost of capital. And there was a really virtuous cycle that you could kind of get in your mind of thinking how this could really revolutionize how um, solar and you know, HVAC upgrades are financed across the economy. And, and then yet I would say, but I recognize that this is really dependent on, um, you know, this, this sort of regulatory government exposure angle here. And then I would stop there. I wouldn't deeply internalize it to say, well, what does that mean? You know, what, what would it mean for failure to look like? So what I have learned to do anytime I'm uh, facing difficult situations is to really kind of try to deeply think about the worst that can happen and, 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 and really uncover it and not run from it, but face it. And then to, to walk back from having learned that to say, okay, well, how's that going to change the way that I approach the problem in the here and now? And that's, that's something that I've, I, I've had to, you know, learn the hard way. I've had to kind of like get kicked in the gut with it a couple of times uh, before learning that, uh, that technique. Yeah. But obviously, you know, like this ended up uh, being a nice segue uh, because the company was packaged and Aquahire that ended up uh, leading to the next company that you were a founder, uh, or, or in this case, uh, a founding VP and doing business development stuff, which was New Energy Risk. So what were you guys doing at New Energy Risk? Yeah, so the story here was um, the company was really founded by a mentor of mine. And this was a very experienced uh, entrepreneur. He'd been a CEO of public companies, very experienced in the insurance and reinsurance industries. And uh, the idea was to uh, bring a lot of modern uh, statistical techniques and kind of advanced mathematics and, and just a modern technology approach to evaluating risk in and around renewable energy. So we took uh, some of the team that I'd built at Green Door and were aqua hired before this term was really popularized. Um, uh, and, and my role really was to sort of be the right hand person to the true founder, uh, who was the, uh, who was the CEO. And it was a really great experience because it was, you know, building this business from the ground up in a really esoteric market that I knew very little about, uh, uh prior to joining, but where there's just tremendous leverage that you can get with insurance, um, as it turns out. And it was a fascinating market to, um, to, to, to come to spend time in. And uh, and it was a great experience to work alongside a more seasoned uh, founder who had done, you know, had built businesses successfully before. Um, and that business ultimately we sold to um, the kind of our major uh, uh, financial partner group called XL Catlin, big reinsurance company. Uh, and that then freed me up to say, okay, well, I've, you know, I, I had this stint at Microsoft where I wasn't super intentional about 
my career. I went to business school. I tried to be extremely intentional about what I wanted to do and build businesses in renewable energy. And what I'd learned was I love building businesses. I learned that I love software businesses. And I'd also learned that just clean tech and renewable energy was a tough market, right? There was a lot of trying to catalyze change in the industry that an entrepreneur had to do in addition to handling all the really tough aspects of building a business from scratch. And I realized, you know, I love building businesses. I love uh, technology, but I want to do it in a different market where it didn't mean that I was any less interested in solving the problem of, of climate change, but I was going to take sort of a effective altruism approach to it of, of being successful in other endeavors and maybe using those proceeds to help with the problem. And, uh, and I, I, there was this other market that I really understood well, very intimately, which was real estate. And it's a huge market. I mean, people don't know this, but real estate's the largest asset class globally. It's the second largest asset class in the U.S. behind public markets. So total market cap of public markets is something on the order of $30 trillion, like rough order of magnitude. Total market cap of commercial real estate uh, in the U.S. is on the order of 15 to $20 trillion. So it's you know half to two-thirds the size of the largest asset class in the U.S. And the largest asset class in the U.S., it functions so effectively digitally that people locate their you know, offices inches closer to a data center to try to get some trading advantage. And it's not an exaggeration to say that in our market in commercial real estate, people are FedExing stacks of paper back and forth uh, to sort of get transactions done. And that's ultimately what got me excited about the potential as I'd spent, you know, I, gosh, by that point, maybe like six years, five or six years uh, hacking away at, um, at building software in and around the financial value chain in clean tech in a market that didn't exist yet. And then in this market that existed and was, was absolutely enormous in commercial real estate, the sort of same pattern of problems in the financial value chain existed, the same opportunity for software. And that's what uh, led us to ultimately start Juniper Square. So let's talk about getting the, the band together at Juniper Square. How did you guys you know, get that founding team in place? Yeah, th this was um, hugely determinative of our success is, is just, you know, getting two incredible co-founders in addition to myself uh, interested in this problem is, is, is certainly the most important um, kind of ingredient to us ultimately being reasonably successful in what we've been doing here. And I did understand that from having started Green Door without a, a, a co-founder. And I knew I, I knew I wanted a co-founder, but I didn't know how to get one. And I would do these awkward things. I'd go to you know these founder meetups, people at Stanford who were interested in starting businesses. And it's I mean it's as awkward as you imagine. It's like being at a social mixer where instead of you know trying to find your 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 future spouse, you're trying to find a, a co-founder. And uh, it, so I recognized the importance of it. And the experience of, of, of kind of building Green Door without having that partner made me realize, and then seeing what it was like to have someone at my second company at New Energy Risk made me realize that there was no way I was going to start any business of any kind without finding the right co-founders. And I had been introduced to Adam, who is Adam Ginsberg, who's our um, head of product and one of the three co-founders. Uh, through a mutual friend who knew us both. And Adam had co-founded a company called Nextdoor, which is uh, like a Facebook for neighborhoods, basically. And he was getting ready to 
to, to move on from next door. The company had grown uh, to be, you know, many hundreds of people and he was kind of ready to start his next challenge. And we just started meeting for coffee, talking about ideas, you know, what kinds of businesses we were interested in, uh, what, what made us tick. And I, I realized with hindsight that this was really important, you know, Adam and I, and then Adam introduced Jonas into the mix. Jonas Vaseja is our head of engineering and third co-founder. And Adam and Jonas had worked together going all the way back to the first internet boom, a company called ePinions, um, uh, uh, which became shopping.com and ultimately got bought by eBay. Um, and there's a whole kind of, there's somebody should do a podcast and a series on like the ePinions mafia. There's an ePinions mafia, just like there is a PayPal mafia, as it turns out. Um, right. But but they had gone back. Uh, they they had worked together, and what I realized with with hindsight was that um, even though Adam and Jonas and I were all very different, um, and we brought a lot of different skills to the table, we had a really deep shared understanding of of the values that mattered to us, of the way that we wanted to build the company, about um, the way that we wanted to develop the organization and the culture, and that has been hugely important. And I often will have you know we're, we're now on our Series C. We've We've raised, I guess, that's our fourth round of financing. And you'll often get asked questions from investors like, hey, tell me about a time that you and your co-founders disagreed or whatever. And I genuinely have a really hard time coming up with any answers to that question because we, we, we fight all the time. Or we may take differing positions on issues, but we have a shared sense of how we solve problems and how we approach decision making. And so if we get a shared sense of the facts and the conclusions and we have a a shared set of, or sorry, if we have a shared set of facts, we have a shared set of goals, we're going to come to the same conclusions. And we really have for the entire history of the company going to like receiving our first M&A offers and that sort of thing. So it's been a real, uh, that, that part has been truly a, a, a real joy and something that I only learned how much I value it um, with, with some, you know, sort of uh, experience going through the, the trials and, and tribulations of building a company together. That's awesome. And and just for the people that are listening to really understand it, so so what ended up being the business model of Juniper Square? Yeah, so the 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 genesis for the company was I was I was so struck by the the difference in public and private markets in terms of of, of digitization. So as I said, public markets, you know, going and buying a, a, a share of Microsoft on the Nasdaq as an example, um, had 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 really embraced digitization and and, and had become uh, fully digital to the point where any person on the street with you know $100 in their pocket could go open up an account on E-Trade or Charles Schwab or anywhere for free. They could go traverse the entire market system of, of, of offerings. They could transact online. They could you know purchase that, that share of stock and connect their bank account and move the money and all of the information that they needed in order to make a determination on whether they thought Microsoft was fairly valued from its accounts receivables balance, you know, last quarter to its forecast, all of that information was organized in the market system, available uh, uh, to the investor. And then there was liquidity. You could immediately decide that you didn't want to own this share of Microsoft stock and sell it five minutes later. And, and, and that entire system had become digital. And uh, it's sort of as you'd expect, just like you can go shop for a pair of, you know, uh, shoes on Amazon or Zappos or whatever. But what, what struck me was that here you had this market system in commercial real estate that was two-thirds the size. It was the next biggest market and no digitization at all, right? No liquidity, no transparency, no ability to 
uh, uh, the idea of transacting online is like, you know, preposterous. You're, you know, going out to dinners and, you know, uh, building relationships in person. And so the, the genesis of the company is to say, how can you digitize and then eventually fractionalize the ownership of commercial real estate buildings to the point where the future we're working towards is one where it's as easy or it hopefully will be as easy to buy and sell a share of a building as it is to buy and sell a share of stock. And that was that was the genesis of the company. That's what we were working toward. If you go back and look at our seed fundraising deck, that you know, so we outlined a a, a long path, but a, a path to to digitizing this huge market system and ultimately enabling a, a much more functional, efficient, uh, transparent, and liquid uh, capital market around it. And the way to do that is you've got to build the tools for the the people who own and manage these buildings, the the general partners who form investment funds to go buy, you know, 101 California or, you know, Rockefeller uh, Plaza or whatever. And you've got to be that tool that becomes the record of their of their ownership. And then when you do enough of that, and to give you a sense of our scale, uh, we have about 700 uh, GPs, general partners, um, who are paying customers of uh, Juniper Square. Collectively, they're managing uh, about a trillion dollars worth of real estate using our tools. And then we have a second line of business that's focused on the limited partner, um, the, the LP. And these would be large pension funds, university endowments, very sophisticated and large investors in real estate. And with that product, we have another uh, uh, two or 300 GPs who are essentially customers of our customers. So collectively, we have more than 1,000 uh, GPs. So we're at, a, we're at a pretty significant scale. I don't think there's anybody operating a bigger scale uh, in commercial real estate than we are. Um, and, uh, but, but, and so the ultimate goal is how do we connect these market participants really seamlessly around a common record of ownership. And it's been a, biz- a business that we've had to kind of put together brick by brick. That's pretty cool. And you were mentioning that you guys have done up to a Series C round. So how, how much capital have you guys raised today? Uh, just over $100 million. And and I believe, million. And I believe that when you guys were right before the Series A, there was a pretty interesting you know, point in time where you receive a couple of acquisition offers and you say no. I mean, if maybe it's... At that point, you thought it was nuts. I mean, now, now looking back, you know, like thank God you didn't you didn't accept those because perhaps it was a little bit early in the process. But can you walk us through like what was that thought process and how you ended up saying no? Yeah, um, yeah, it was it was kind of a strange summer. In this one summer, we received two different unsolicited kind of inbound uh, uh, offers to to sell the company, and they were they were very hard offers to dismiss. They were very big, uh, you know, for us at the time offers. And this was about three years into our journey. And, and I think it's important to recognize that the way that we've had to build the product, it, it is kind of the core financial ERP around the ownership of these really big, important assets. And so it's, you know, to build the MVP, to build a minimum viable product, you have to kind of write a lot of code and the thing has to do a lot. And so we spent about 18 months, uh, just the three co-founders um, and, and about a dozen uh, of, of our founding customers building out the MVP uh, of, of what is today Juniper Square. And, and then, you know, in the subsequent 18 months, we'd started to, we'd raised a seed round of capital. We raised 2 million bucks um, from, you know, kind of some 
friends of ours who were active early stage investors, a few industry strategics. Um, and so we had a couple million dollars of capital into the company, but really very little uh, pref to, to satisfy. And we'd only had, at this point, we'd really just started building the team. So I think we had maybe 10 employees or a dozen employees, something like that, maybe even fewer than 10. And along comes this offer after we'd spent kind of two years, you know, quite literally sometimes at our customer sites, but but down, you know, below decks in the engine room, building out uh, the 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 ship from the engine room outward. Uh, you know, no no uh, none of the fun aspects of the job. Actually, looking back with hindsight, those were some of the most rewarding periods. But at the time, we we felt like we were just getting started, like we had just built this product. And we were just bringing it to market. And we, we really did believe that it had, and we had as a company, the potential to transform this hugely important industry for the world. And yet along come these, these two strategics with these offers that one of which the total consideration to give you a sense of scale was like close to nine figures. I mean, it was, it was an extremely difficult um, decision to make because it basically boiled down to us deciding as a founding team, why are we doing this? And if you had asked us, at the start of the company to describe the most ridiculous offer that we could reasonably expect to get. This was it. Um, and yet we, we, we said no to it. And it ultimately came down to us just really trying to unpack and be very authentic about what motivated us, what made us tick, what was going to bring us satisfaction over the course of a life and, and realizing it wasn't really just about money and that if we sold the company, yeah, we'd have more money but we would just be tortured for the rest of our life with the question of what if or what could have become. And, uh, and so we, we rolled the dice and said no to both of these offers and went out, raised our series a, um, and, and, you know, we haven't looked back since, but, but life would be very different if we had chosen the, uh, the other path. That's incredible. And, and one of the questions that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, Alex is, uh, I mean, what a remarkable journey, no? Like uh, where, where you're coming from and now where you are at with, with Juniper Square. But if you had the chance of having a chance really there to speak with your younger self, with that younger Alex that maybe is still in Stanford, thinking about like what's going to be this next business that I'm going to launch. And you had a chance to really sit down and, and give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, knowing what you know now? I, I think it would be um, this idea of, of not wasting any time at playing startup and like playing startup in air quotes. And I, you know, I don't know who popularized this term. It might've been Paul Graham or it, it, it certainly wasn't me, but the basic idea is that um, there's really only one thing that matters in building a company. And that's, you know, building something that people want and that is not just a little bit better than their status quo but is, is really significantly better because that's what it takes to kind of really motivate uh, change. And it's really easy when building a company to focus on kind of what your name is going to be and where your office is going to be and, you know, exactly what should be in your seed fundraising deck. And these are all things that this all kind of falls into playing startup. It's, it's not the thing that matters, which is, you know, spending time on building something people want. And when I reflect on how differently they early days of my first company, Green Door, were from how we approached building Juniper Square. Uh, I, I spent a ton of time on these kind of playing startup topics at Green Door, and we spent exactly zero time on it at Juniper Square. For the first 18 months of the company's life, we didn't have a website. We didn't have a company name. 
because we had founding customers, we had the ability to build product. And so the only thing that mattered was, was building something that, that people wanted. And this is something that I've had to learn over time across three startups. But I think if I could go back and just drop something into my head to internalize in that younger version of myself, it would be that. It would just be this, this ability to shut out everything else and focus only on uh, building something that people want. And if you get there, then the fundraising is easy and the, everything else is easy. And if you don't get it, then you know it doesn't matter how good a fundraiser you are. So that's probably, I, I think, I guess how I'd answer that question. Very profound. And for the folks that are listening, Alex, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, I, I maintain a fairly uh, limited presence on Twitter uh, that our marketing team would tell you they're quite embarrassed by. So you, you can certainly reach me on uh, <laughs> on, on Twitter. Um, uh, and But I don't, unfortunately, I, you know, I, I'm one of these people that's so heads down on building our business that I don't invest a lot of time personally in a public persona or or, or spend a lot of time. Um, so you can get me on LinkedIn, uh, on Twitter, those typical places. Amazing. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. My pleasure, Alejandro. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.